You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from the North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. This morning's sermon text is found in Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 12. If you look in front of you in the chairs, there's a pew Bible there. That's on page 8. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12? Hear the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we want to see more of you from it. So meet us in this moment. Help us to see what you want us to see. Enliven our hearts to worship and to praise you and to delight in you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have come to learn 
now living in Minnesota more than a decade, that part of being a true Minnesotan is getting used to disappointment. This is perhaps best embodied in the Minnesota Vikings. Around this time of year, Vikings fans console themselves that next year will be different. Next year will be our year. We've lost four Super Bowls, always a bridesmaid, never the bride. Old timers probably reminisce about Gary Anderson's missed field goal in 1998. It would have had made it a two score game and then you would have gotten to Super Bowl 33. We have great moments like the Minneapolis miracle and yet we get demolished by the Eagles in the next game, 38-7. to That was the NFC Championship game. In a year when we think, finally, our hated rivals, the Packers, will finally do poorly because Aaron Rodgers is no longer on their team, they're in the playoffs, and we're going to be sitting at home watching them later this afternoon. So if a new Vikings coach... Uh, or a general manager were to promise a championship within five years, what would we think? We can't believe that promise. If we draft a rookie this spring and they say, I promise that I will bring a Super Bowl to Minnesota, we know better than to believe them. We have learned to have lowered expectations. We distrust unbelievable promises. But when it comes with comes to God's promises, that is different. God never makes a promise that he doesn't intend to keep. He is faithful to carry out his promises. His promises are never unbelievable, nor should we approach them with lowered expectations. Rather, when it comes to God and his promises, we can bank our lives on what he says. If he said it, he will do it, and he never lies. So this leads us to our passage this morning in Genesis 12 where we get God's promise to bless Abraham and to use Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. Now Genesis chapters 1 through 11 covered creation and the fall and we covered thousands of chapters but now we zoom in on the life of just four generations for the remaining four-fifth or 80 percent of the book Abraham Isaac Jacob and Jacob's children so what we have in this chapter are two major scenes first we get the call of Abraham we see that in verses 1 through 9 then we get his stumbling and faltering in Egypt in verses 10 through 20. But before we begin, we, we need to recognize that Genesis 12 is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. You cannot tell the story of creation, fall, redemption, and recreation without Genesis 12. So right at the outset, I'm going to tell us the main point, which is this. God is faithful and true to his promises. God is faithful and true to keep his promises. And in this chapter, God sets in motion redemptive history that will ultimately climax in the person and work of Jesus. It's a little bit like this. Uh, if you've watched those old cartoons, you know, uh, the character will make a snowball and then they'll roll it down the hill 
And then it just continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And I've never experienced this in all my time living in Minnesota, but my, my daughter says that it happens. Like you can kind of figure it out and it just grows and grows. And by the end, it's this massive snow-like boulder. That's a little bit of what's taking place here. Genesis 12 is where we begin to take that little snowball and we're rolling it down the hill to set into motion God's unfolding plan of redemption that will not stop until it's finished. And this chapter encourages us to trust the Lord. It would have encouraged the original audience, Israel, as they're on the cusp of entering in the promised land and they're hearing this and they're saying, that land is actually ours. It's been promised to Abraham hundreds of years ago. So as we go in, we should not be sheepish about taking it. It is our land. And in the same way, it should encourage us this morning. So our plan is gonna look at these two scenes in our passage and then to see how this applies to us. So first, we get scene one, which is the call of Abraham. Now, if you weren't here last week, we saw that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans with his father's family to go into the land of Canaan, but they stopped in Haran. And with him would be Terah, his father, his wife, Sarai, and who was barren, and Lot, his nephew, and then several other relatives and cousins and all of those people as well. Now look at verse one with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice how it gets more and more costly. He's to leave his country, the place where his family has now settled down, but then he's to leave his kindred. This would be the larger clan or tribe that he's a part of. And then he's to leave his father's house. So his relatives, his cousins, his father. Now in chapter 11 of last week, we said that Terah had died at 205 years old, but at this point he's still alive because he had Abram at age 70, and we read that Abram is 75 years old, so he's 145 years old. He's gonna live on another 60 years. Now, the next thing we see is seven promises to Abram in verses two and three. See if you see all seven of these promises. The first is in verse two, and I will make you a great nation. So not just that I'm going to make you a, a great family, but I'm going to make you a nation. So that will have land and people and some sort of government. I, I'm going to make you this nation. And this is surprising because we've been told that Sarah is barren. The second promise, I will bless you. This is both spiritual and material blessing. Blessing in the Old Testament often meant prosperity or fertility and victory over one's enemies. The third promise, God says, and I will make your name great. And what, what should that call to mind? Chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. The people wanted a great name and God said, I'm going to scatter you. But here, Abram is promised that he will have a great name. He'll have a significant name. In Genesis 17, God will change Abram's name to Abraham and call him a father of nations. And even today, if you just look out, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all point to Abraham as a venerated figure. He has a great name. The fourth promise is that you will be a blessing. Not only will Abraham be blessed, but 
others will be blessed through him. And then we see the fifth and sixth promises. They go together. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So if someone mistreats Abram, God will protect him. It also means that God will bless those who are kind towards him. And kind of throughout Genesis, what we'll begin to see is that all these people who come into contact with Abram, they'll either be blessed or they'll be cursed based on how they treat Abram. Now, the seventh promise is there, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now this widens the scope of God's blessing to Abram. So think of it like this, God created the heavens and the earth and all the people rebel and so he brings a flood and then he scatters them and now he narrows in on one man. And through this one man, he's now going to branch all the way back out and bless all the families of the earth. So Abram receives seven promises and we know as we've studied Genesis, seven is this number of completion or perfection. And notice that the word blessed or blessing occurs five different times. In a sense, God is restoring what was broken in the fall. Humanity was banished from Eden and scattered as a people, but God is going to bring blessing to the entire world, all the families, all the nations of the earth through one man. Now, how does Abram respond? It says in verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. What is striking in these first nine verses is that Abram says nothing. We don't get any indication of him speaking, and I think there's a reason why. The, the reason is that we're to see the divine initiative of God in this passage. This passage is not mainly about how Abram responds, though that is important, and Hebrews picks up on that, which we'll see. But the main point of this entire section, this entire chapter, if you will, is that God is the main actor. He's unfolding his plan of redemption. Now, Abram obeys God. What we see is that he goes into the land. And do you see what he does as he goes into the land? Look at verse 6. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So he's moving in and through the land that God says, this is the land I'm going to give you. And yet there's another people that is already dwelling there. And what does Abram do? Well, he builds an altar to the Lord. And God appears to Abram and he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. We don't know if it was an angel or a dream or a vision, but then he, he moves into this other part between Bethel and Ai, and then he built an altar to the Lord. This is verse eight, and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, the question for us is why does Abram build these two altars? Uh, that seems like an unusual thing to do. I think we're supposed to see this. It's a, it's a little bit like if our space program, you know, NASA and SpaceX and Blue Origin and, and all those, they partner together and we have this big leap in technology and all of a sudden we get to Mars. If you're the first person on Mars, what do you do? You probably pull out our American flag and you mark it and you say, we were the first ones here. I think that's a little bit of what Abram is doing. He's marking it. He's claiming that territory. He's saying, in this land, it's not yet, because there's all these Canaanites, but God is going to be worshipped here in this land. Let me mark it with an altar to God. Those altars are where he worships God. It's a, a way of saying thank you almost. God says, I'm going to give all this land to you. 
And Abram says, I'm believing it. I'm going to believe that promise. I'm going to build an altar and worship God. This is a bit of a crude comparison, but it's a little bit like our dog that walks around the neighborhood and he's leaving his mark, his scent on everything, right? Piles of snow, fire hydrants, bridges, curbs, it doesn't matter. He's leaving his scent everywhere, marking his territory. His, his name's Caspian. So he's saying, Caspian has been here. And a little bit, Abram is marking this territory for God. This will be God's country. He's claiming this land as God's kingdom. Imagine if you're Israel and you're hearing this. You're on, in Moab, you're about to enter into the promised land under Joshua's leadership and you hear this account. What does that bring to mind? It brings to mind hope, confidence, and that God is true to his word. We can trust him because he promised this long ago. In fact, we know that there are two altars out there that Abraham has already established for the worship of our God. So in this first scene, God initiates by calling Abram to go into a new land with these seven promises to make him great. Now, we can apply this section by looking at how Abraham challenges and encourages us to trust the Lord. We're not called by God to be a father of nations, but we are called by God, each and every single one of us, to walk by faith, even when we don't know what might be ahead of us. We're called to trust him, even when we can't see how it's all going to pan out. And this morning, some of you are facing challenges and trials in your life. Some of you are enduring suffering, maybe persevering through hardship. Maybe you're on the precipice of what feels like an unknown, vast region, lots of decisions that are ahead of you. Maybe with work or family or your physical health or your finances or your future. What we see in Abram is that he trusts God because God is trustworthy and that we too can trust God. It calls to mind the chorus of the old hymn, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Now we turn to our second scene because even when we walk by faith we can often falter and act in fear and this leads us to scene two and this is when they go into Egypt. So if you'll see there in verse 10 famine forces Abram and Sarai including Lot to go into Egypt. Now famine would be a common occurrence in that region depending on the rainfall uh, this desert region and so both Abram and Jacob go into Egypt where they could survive the droughts. And Egypt was uniquely able to weather the drought because they had the Nile River. Now, this word sojourn suggests that they set up tents and they stay a while in that region. They would be like resident aliens without protections or rights, which probably leads to Abram's fear as they go into this land. Now, we come to verse 11. We get to hear Abram speak for the very first time, and it's not great, is it? He tells Sarai to say that she is his sister which is a half truth. If you looked in Genesis 20 verse 12 we learn that they have the same father Terah but different mothers. So it, it, it is true that she is his sister but that's not his motivation there. He, he's trying let, let me tell a little half truth so that uh, I can't be guilty of lying. 
And as they go in, he's afraid that these Egyptians are going to kill him. And this raises all sorts of questions. The first, the narrator tells us, is that Sarai is a beautiful woman in appearance. Verse 11. And then in verse 14 and 15, it says, The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh praised her to Pharaoh. Verse 15. You see that? She's what we might call dangerously beautiful. It's like the pickup line. If looks could kill, you would be the goddess of death, right? So that one's free if you want to use it on, you know, your, your wife later. So, but, but this often creates a problem for interpreters since we know that Abraham is 75 years old at this point. Sarah is 65 years old. It says in Genesis 17, 17, when Abraham was 100, she was 90. So we know that she's 65. So uh, all, all the commentators are wondering, how is it possible that she's so dazzlingly attractive at even such an age? And my wife reminded me not to offend all the 65-year-olds in our <laughs> congregation this morning. Uh, I won't do it, but John Calvin, in one of his commentaries, <laughs> says that there, nothing diminishes a woman's beauty like having children. And so then he says, the reason she was beautiful is because she had no children. I don't agree with that. So <laughs> some speculate that beauty was measured in one's eyes, like the reference to Leah's eyes being weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That's Genesis 29, 17. I don't think so as well. Uh, I think she is a gorgeous, elegant woman. And we know that she lived 127 years. So in her 60s, she would be middle age. So she would like, be equivalent to a woman in her 30s and 40s. So she's dazzlingly beautiful is what we're told. Now, Abram fears how her beauty will attract powerful men who will kill him and take her for their wife. In this account, what we see is that she does not speak at all. She doesn't protest. She, she doesn't go along. We, we just don't know what she's thinking in this. She, she's probably thinking, you're an idiot, but you know, she, we, we don't get that. And the reason for that is because all of the culpability lies squarely with Abram. This is his harebrained idea. And this is the first of three wife-sister episodes where Abram and or Isaac say that their wife is their sister to avoid being killed. And so I think we're supposed to see this relationship between them and this common pattern of sin. And I think it's also uh, to give us a little bit of the ring of here's a man who does not lead and causes the downfall and puts God's plan into jeopardy. It's supposed to remind us of Adam. So in verse 15, we learn that Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house. The word take here means that she was brought into Pharaoh's royal harem. Now, we don't know if she was violated. In the Genesis 20, verse 4 account, it's made very clear that Abimelech did not even approach Sarah at that point. But we don't get that here. And so that causes many to speculate that she was violated. But at the same time, the Bible never shies away from describing inappropriate sexual relations and doesn't describe that here. It could be that she was just brought into Pharaoh's harem and God afflicted him with plagues before anything could happen. And I think that's the most likely scenario. If you think back when Esther was brought into the king's harem, how much time of preparation did she get? She had a full year of using six months of certain ointments and then another six months until she was to go in to the king. 
And as a result, Abram receives sheep and oxen and male and female donkeys and servants and camels. When we hear this, we think, oh, he gave him a petting zoo. That's nice. But that's not the case. This is over-the-top riches. It's like a bride price or a dowry, some ancient compensation for Abram. This is a massive amount of money. It's over-the-top wealth. It's like, you know, Oprah saying, you get a car and you get a car. It's really just dishing out cars and houses and, and so many riches. But quickly we learn that God, again, is the chief actor in this story. He afflicts Pharaoh's house with plagues, and this is a picture of divine judgment. The, the word plagues there is the exact same one that happens in the Exodus. When God afflicts Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt with plagues. And what we see here in this story is this microcosm of what we'll see in the Exodus as well, where God's people go into Egypt, God afflicts Pharaoh with plagues, and then they leave with the riches of Egypt. I think it's foreshadowing what will happen with God's people and how God uses unrighteous mammon to accomplish his purposes. Now, the text doesn't tell us how Pharaoh figured it out that Sarah was Abram's wife. God doesn't explicitly condemn Abram's actions in this, but what we do get is Pharaoh's voice, and I think in many ways, it's almost as though God is using Pharaoh to speak for him. Look with me at verse 18. I'm gonna read 18 all the way to 20. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. What's striking here is that we get a pagan king, Pharaoh, rebuking Abram for his unrighteousness, for his lack of faith, for his faltering. Pharaoh seemingly has greater spiritual sensitivity or morality than Abram. Pharaoh seems to trust or at least fear God more than Abram fears God. And they get kicked out of Egypt. Look at verse 13, actually chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Notice that they leave with all that he had. So Pharaoh doesn't make him give it all back. It's a little odd. He's just like, get out of my face. Get, just go. Just take it and go, right? It's a little bit like keeping the engagement ring but canceling the wedding. It seems a little bit odd. So it looks like Abram makes out really well with this lie, doesn't it? It, it almost seems to give us the lesson that if you lie, God will bless you with all of these prosperity and riches. Is that the lesson here? Well, no, it's not. The point is not about Abram. The repeated theme that we'll see throughout Genesis that we begin here is that God is faithful to his promises despite the failure of his people. God is faithful to his promises despite the failure of his people. If we look to Genesis to say, let's get these great, glorious examples of Christian living from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what we'll quickly discover is that all of these people were massive failures. 
Sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. They fall short again and again and again and again. And yet, God is faithful despite the failures of his people. Often when Genesis 12 is preached, people will preach the first half and they'll point to, look at Abram and his faith to obey. And then the second show Abram's stumbling in Egypt. But when we put these two together and back to back like the narrator has done for us, I think what it teaches us is not to mainly emulate Abram. It's not mainly, look how he obeyed. Yes, we can see that, and yes, we want to see that, and Hebrews does draw that out. But what we should see primarily is that Genesis 12 is revealing God's sovereign plan to use one flawed man to bring blessing to the whole earth. God chose Abraham not because he did anything special, not because he was anyone special. He was special because God called him. It's not because he was going to be this amazingly wise or humble man. God just chooses who he chooses. God gives a sevenfold blessing to Abram. And in the very next scene, we see God carrying out that very blessing. That's what we're to see. God will carry out his purposes despite the failures and the follies and the sins of his people. And that should give us great hope this morning, should it not? God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say God works everything together for good for those who are perfect, those who always obey, those who show perfect faith, those who never sin. God is gracious to use flawed people for his purposes. And that should give us hope this morning. That should give us encouragement you should see God made the promise and he's already fulfilling it. Look, he, he says, I'm going to bless you. And so through famine, when Abram should become destitute, potentially even die because there's drought, there's no food. Instead, he leaves Egypt a rich man. Servants, th- this would have signaled great, great wealth. If you saw you know, a train of people in the Middle East through the desert and, and The patriarch is sitting on a camel. You think, these people have money. That's the picture of Abram. God said, I'm gonna give you a great name. And as he leaves Egypt, did you notice in verse 20, what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh gave the men orders concerning him. He said, don't any of us dare touch Abram or his wife. His reputation from this point on will precede him. People will be in fear of him. He's already been given a great name and it will only grow. Did you see when he said, those who dishonor you, I will curse. And Pharaoh's house is afflicted with great plagues after he takes his wife. Three of the seven promises are already being enacted by God. Now, how does this text relevant for us this morning. There are several kind of concentric circles of application that we could look at this morning. First, we can see in Abram an example of obedience. I just said, you know, we don't primarily see that, and yet the author of Hebrews does do that, and so I want to draw that out. Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10, says, by faith, Abraham obeyed, and he went out not knowing where he was going, 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So yes, Abram was not perfect, but he walked by faith and he obeyed God's call on his life. And even where he didn't know where he was going, he didn't know how these things would come to pass, his wife was barren, he still trusted God despite not seeing where things would go. And this morning, we can be encouraged and challenged. If God has revealed something to you from his word, where it's just a clear matter of obedience, like I either can obey God or I can disobey God. Like God has given very specific instructions how I to handle my finances or my life or how I should handle something in my life. Let me just encourage you, obey. God is trustworthy. Even when it seems like, I, I think I might make off financially a little bit better if I disobey, if I tell a half truth, it's not worth it. Walk by faith. God will make it abundantly clear. But if we go out one level, we see in Abram an example of worship. They go into the land that God had promised him and the Canaanites are everywhere. And does Abram say, look at all these people. How am I possibly going to receive this land? No. What does he do instead? By faith, he builds an altar. He worships there and says, I'm gonna believe your word. I'm gonna believe what you have said even though I don't see it yet. And for some of us, that's what we need to do. God has given you a promise and you can't see how it will possibly ever come to pass. You know, there's promises in God's word that you're just holding on to, praying again and again and again, holding, cleaving to, and you're just unsure how it will ever happen for you, for your family, for your children, for your grandchildren. And what we're called to do is to turn to him in worship. Don't get angry because of a trial or an unmet expectation or a lack of physical healing, but instead we cleave to his promises and we trust him because he's worthy. If we go out one more level, we can find great encouragement and hope like we talked about with Israel standing on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And Joshua looks out at them and he says, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And, and just like the Israelites, we too can take heart. We can find hope, we can find encouragement. Now, we're not called to take over a foreign land like Israel was. We're not called to invade any earthly nations, but we have been called by God right now, all of us, to wage war against Satan and his earthly dominion. We are to stand firm, Ephesians 6, against the schemes of the devil and the spiritual forces of evil. We're to put on the whole armor of God and take up the shield of faith and wield the sword of the spirit. And we are to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that he is king. We are to go out into the midst of the darkness knowing that the forces of evil hate us, to stand firm in that, to proclaim this good news so that some would come to saving faith in Jesus. This is our call. We have something much greater than physical land to obtain. We have souls to save. And God calls all of us to be unafraid 
walking into our workplace, into our neighborhoods, into whatever community organizations to take heart. God has already given it to us. He says, I have many people in this place, Paul. Keep preaching. It's just a matter of time. And I think he says the same to us. I have many people in the Twin Cities who have yet to bow the knee, but oh, I've ordained it. It's just a matter of time. Oh, won't you be obedient and open the word with them? Share the gospel, love them, draw them in, show them the beauty of Christ at work in his church. Our main point this morning is that God is faithful and true to his promises more than anything else. If God says it, you can take it to the bank. God never lies. If God says it, it is as good as done. In fact, in the Old Testament, often the prophets would write things in the past tense as if it's already been done because they're like, it's as good as done. They had such confidence. And God has promised Abram to bless all the nations of the earth. And this would come to fruition. This would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Now, how did all the families of the earth experience blessing in Jesus? In the fullness of time, God sent his son, and Jesus declares in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Jesus lived among us and he validated his preaching by healing the sick, by feeding the 5,000, casting out demons, raising the dead, walking on water, and he ultimately would lay down his life on the cross so that all who would believe in him might have eternal life. Jesus ushers in God's kingdom, his eternal plan, so that all the families of the earth could come and worship this person. God has set into motion this great and glorious plan of redemption that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus. It's that snowball. It's rolling down the hill, and as it gets to the bottom, it's this massive mountain, and that is Christ and all can come to this mountain not like when they come to Mount Sinai with lightning and smoke and fear it talks about this in Hebrews we don't come to Mount Sinai what does it say we come to Mount Zion where we come by the blood of Christ we draw near by confidence not in fear but in confidence all the families All the families of the earth, everyone can come, not mainly in fear and trembling, but with joy and confidence because Jesus has made a way for all the families of the earth to come to know him and to love him. And now he commissions us, calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. So the invitation this morning is extended to all. If you're aware of your spiritual neediness, your your spiritual thirstiness, You can come to the living water where Jesus alone can satisfy and you can find forgiveness and grace. What began in Genesis 12 is unfolding so that some from every family on the face of the earth will come to Jesus and believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can see that you are working in all of creation beginning this plan of redemption, causing it to come to pass. And so may we trust you in our little place, in our little time, in this unfolding plan. Oh, may we be instruments where many others are drawn into your kingdom. Do that. 
for your namesake, for your glory, and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from the North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.